Hola, Joshua Smizer de Leon here, founder and host of the Basel podcast. Thanks for listening to the show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo, Boricua, and Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can also give a donation by looking up the Paseo podcast on savechicagomedia.org. Okay, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Bienvenidos to the Paseo podcast. I am your host, Joshua Smizer de Leon, and today we are talking to Melissa Cristina Marquez. She is a Puerto Rican marine biologist, science communicator, and author. She's been featured in places like National Geographic, Discovery Channel, GQ, Forbes, and Good Morning America. Um, and uh, of course, of all the places in the world to be right now, uh, not only is she in Australia, but she's joining us on the show today. So Melissa, we appreciate you making the time. Welcome to the Paseo podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Joshua. It is un placer. You <laughs> <laughs> Um, Why did you decide to become a marine biologist specifically? Uh, what attracted you to studying sharks? Yeah, so, you know, I, I was born in Puerto Rico. And so my first memories are of me on the beach. And my dad likes to joke that the only thing that would shut baby Melissa up at three o'clock in the morning was the Little Mermaid. So it seems like I had the ocean in my blood from very young age. Um, and yeah, my first memories are of me being out on the beaches of Puerto Rico. Um, the same beaches as well. And I got to like see them over time, how they changed. And to me, it was always fascinating seeing how they changed above the ocean, like waves, but also below uh, and seeing all the different animals. And so that for me kind of really solidified my love for the ocean and wanting to learn a little bit more about it. But it wasn't until I moved um, from Puerto Rico to Mexico and then Mexico to the United States that I really fell in love with sharks just because when we moved, it was during the summertime and during the summertime, uh, usually the Discovery Channel has a uh, program that's called Shark Week. Mm -hmm. And so during Shark Week, it's a whole entire week dedicated to shark programming. And I turned it on by happenstance, uh, got to see a great white shark kind of flying out of the water off of South Africa. And since then, I've been hooked. Dang. Um, what part of uh, <laughs> I mean... I'll be honest, I you're going to hate me, but I'm like terrified of fish. Um, <laughs> I kid you not. Like, I mean, no, I like I like the idea of fish. But if I'm in the same water as them, like I've been in El Yunque in the water and all of a sudden I'll see a big fish. And then I'm like, I'm, you've seen way bigger fish. than This is like a little tiny thing. But to me, it's huge. I'm like, I got to get out of here. I just can't do it. And I don't know why. I think I haven't been exposed to the right experience yet. You know what? <laughs> Actually, quite a lot of people are afraid of fish and of mm -hmm. other different marine animals. Um, but it, it makes sense. You know, that's not really our natural environment, if you think about it. I mean, look at our hands and our feet. These are meant to be on land. And so it's such a completely different environment that almost having that loss of control, because, you know, even the best swimmer on our planet is nothing compared to like just regular fish like not talented whatsoever compared to some fish that are out there yeah. and so i think it is quite unnerving to 
immerse yourself almost in like a different planet, even though we share the same exact planet with this ecosystem. Yeah, and I I really liked a, a TED a TEDx talk you gave, and you were talking about how uh, sharks are portrayed in the media and mm. how the things around us can really shape how we look at other animals. I have some questions for you, Melissa. That it's like yeah. you're gonna like teach me a bunch about sharks. Uh, <laughs> um, well, let's go. <laughs> I have so many questions. Well, before we get to that, um, I, I did want to ask you, you know, in your experiences as a Latina in STEM. Um, and shout out to you. you. You had mentioned you're uh, working on your PhD right now. So that's just amazing. Major props. Um, you know, what would you say are some of the biggest obstacles preventing more Latinas from entering into the STEM field? You know, that's a really good question. Um, and it's a multi prong and complex problem that doesn't really have an easy solution. I think some of the obstacles that I've seen, at least, um, is definitely lack of proper educational opportunities for the Latinx communities. Uh, so a lot of times you go to schools where it's predominantly um, Latinx community there and you don't have teachers who can properly teach you science and mathematics and English and writing and coding. So that already puts you at a disadvantage. Uh, then you've got a lack of adequate parent involvement. And that's often due to them working long hours. Uh, sometimes there's language barriers. Uh, sometimes they have uh, insufficient formal schooling, so they don't really know how to help you. Uh, there's cultural attitudes as well involved. And then, of course, there's the absence of role models for Latinx students. And while a lot of people may not think that representation of seeing yourself kind of do something um, is important, it actually is very, very important. And for a lot of people, myself included, it can be quite demoralizing when you look at something, say like a lineup of scientists and you can't see somebody that you relate to or someone who looks like you. Uh, you almost feel as if that industry just isn't welcoming to you and who you stand for. And, um, and as you were entering, as you were entering into your field, um, when you were, you said like, you know, it's kind of tough to look around you, not see other people that look like you. Did you, were you lucky enough to have someone that looked like you in your field already? Um, just in terms of like from a mentorship perspective or were all of your, uh, mentors or people you had to learn from, uh, just, um, you know, white men? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, there were two females that I really looked up to, which is Sylvia Earle and uh, Eugenie Clark, uh, but both of them aren't Latina. And, you know, both uh, glass shattering people in their own regards, just the amount of work um, that Sylvia Earle still does today and that Eugenie Clark did before she passed away uh, not too long ago. And so it was great having at least two female role models, but you didn't really get to see them. And kind of how you said, um, with how sharks are portrayed in uh, the media, how shark scientists are portrayed is usually that it is an older white male. And so growing up, you know, I did, even though I wanted to be a shark scientist, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is something I can get into because there's no females, let alone any Latinas. Um, and, you know, thankfully, there are now a lot of groups that allow you to converse with not just uh, people from the Latinx community, uh, but also other communities as well, such as um, Black and Marine Science, Latino Outdoors, uh, Minorities and Shark Sciences. All of those are kind of uh, specifically geared towards the minorities in marine sciences or in the wildlife sphere. So you can kind of have that sense of community and you're not as alone. But that wasn't around when I was growing up. 
And so it was quite isolating um, and a bit demoralizing at times. What were you telling yourself to kind of get you through that that time when you were those times when you were feeling demoralized? Like, did you ever reconsider? Like, did I make the right decision? Um, and, you know, mm. how'd you how'd you kind of push through that? Yeah, you know, it is one of those things where um, I'm still technically early in my career, um, you know, having working still for my PhD. And so it still sometimes does feel a bit demoralizing in that academia, that culture is just so different from the culture that I grew up with, which as a Latina, it's all about your comunidad, about uh, your just that community that you have essentially la comunidad that is the big one you you know you always look out for one another you're always there with welcoming arms that sort of thing academia is the complete opposite of it uh you know there's a lot of competition it, it almost is like the complete opposite of my values and of my morals and so it can be quite demoralizing at times even today uh but it's one of those things where hey, i am stubborn and so if i say i want to be something i'm gonna i'm gonna do it um, but B, it's also, I think my passion and my love for it trump more of the bad stuff, essentially. And so I'm like, you know, I'm really passionate about this. I love what I do. That to me makes it all worth it. You know, when I was looking at your website, I saw, you know, you, you have bylines and Forbes and GQ and uh, or you were featured in Forbes, GQ, National Geographic, you know, Good Morning America, like all these really cool outlets. Um, you know, uh, and can you share a little bit about what, you know, saying yes to those opportunities and, and working hard to get those opportunities has meant for you from a, a visibility standpoint? Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things where I take a really great responsibility knowing I'm in that position to be a role model that I once wish I had. Um, again, kind of how we said, well, many people think representation doesn't matter. It's just so important to show people from all backgrounds, really, mm -hmm. that they can exist in every industry. Um, and since I've been on those kind of big name platforms, I've had so many Hispanic families come up to me and say things like, you know, my daughter thought, never thought she could do this. But after seeing you, she wants to be a shark scientist. She wants to be a marine biologist and different variations of those kind of stories that just to me reaffirm why I do what I do, which is advocating for more diversity and inclusion in science. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest impacts that I've had um, and that I've been able to have. And I hope that I'll continue to make much more of an impact uh, because I really think, especially with me now having this platform, it allows me to pass on the proverbial microphone to people from other ethnicities and other backgrounds and give them their chance to shine. And I really do believe we need to hear stories from every culture and every ethnicity, hear about their successes, their failures, and above all, we need to hear that going into their kind of dream career is possible and it's worthwhile. Uh, because I think, again, that lack of representation is really putting off some people from being in not just the marine sciences, but in the sciences in general, because they can't see themselves there. And why would you wanna go somewhere where it doesn't seem like you're welcome? Yeah, no, I'm you're totally right. Um, and, and I have to say, like, if, if a kid going back to something you said earlier, if a kid came up to me and said, it's because of you know, because I my kids, you know, or because I see you, I want to be, be in your profession, my like heart would melt. That would be like spinach yeah. 
to Popeye. You know what I mean? Like talk about an amazing motivator to keep doing what you're doing. Um, That's it. it. Right? Just one of those messages. It just makes it worth it. It's yeah. like I've had an impact on one person. You just don't know what kind of ripples you're creating. And so every now and then kind of just getting those messages, it's nice to know that those ripples are out there. And mm -hmm. I don't know what what's going to happen from it, but it makes me happy knowing that at least I've changed the mind of someone. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, and I, and I do love the mindset of, you know, if you kick a door open, you're not closing it behind you. You know, you're leaving it open for the next person to come through. And in fact, you're extending your hand backwards, you know, to bring them to bring them along with you. You had written a piece in Forbes. Uh, it was about a research that sought to answer uh, a question of how abundant uh, sharks were in the Caribbean coral reefs before, uh, you know, us humans came along. Um, can you give us like a high level view of, of why, why that research was so significant? Because it, it was a great article. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, it's probably one of the more fascinating pieces that I've written um, this last little bit. Uh, and I think it's mostly because there's this saying that goes, you need to know your past in order to prevent those past mistakes, um, repeating them in the future, essentially. And I think it's a really excellent approach when discussing our planet and the fact that ecologist Aaron Dillon, who's from uh, UC Santa Barbara, they essentially reconstructed historical shark communities to figure out how reef-associated shark communities have changed since humans began taking over this coastal area is fascinating. Um, one thing that she said that really stuck out to me is having a tool or another tool because um, what she did was kind of groundbreaking. So having this tool at our disposal to understand the status of shark populations and evaluate this kind of local management goals is really promising because being able to figure out, all right, this is how it used to be. This is how it is now. What has changed? What possible factors could have gone into this decline or this um, uptick per se, but for this, for the sharks, it was a decline. Um, I think it's really, really good. And it's just another kind of tool to have at our arsenal to learn our impact on our planet and what we can do to minimize that impact. Can you share anything on, you know, what, what the shark population looked like in the Caribbean? Um, you know, I'm thinking like specifically around Puerto Rico. I know the study was more focused closer to Panama city, I think, or yeah. if I'm remembering correctly, but I mean, yeah. it, is there anything in your mind palace about like, uh, the shark populations around Puerto Rico, just kind of sticking into that Caribbean uh, part of the world? Yeah, so um, twofold kind of question. First yeah. about like <laughs> um, the specific kind of study here. So for mm -hmm. that specific study um, with the data, it showed that there was the biggest decline um, in shark abundance seemed to have occurred in like the latter half of the 20th century. So that's like wow. within the last 100 years. Jeez. And that actually coincides with the advent of a targeted shark fishery in Panama. Um, so it just shows that even though prehistorical reefs seem to have like a really similar structure or environmental conditions as today, these declines probably weren't just due to uh, direct impact to the animals such as overfishing and bycatch but it was also habitat destruction and dwindling price so it's a whole entire kind of puzzle piece it's not just one piece here one piece there mm. it's multiple pieces that are causing this decline now for what shark populations look like today around puerto rico 
Unfortunately, and a bit strangely, shark research there is very limited. Um, so uh -huh. little is known about the many different species that inhabit Puerto Rican waters, what their distribution is. Uh, there's been previous molecular studies that have kind of revealed there's at least 21 different species from sh of sharks around Puerto Rico that inhabit all sorts of different habitats. So shallow water, coastal, deep water habitats. Uh, to me, it's kind of mind boggling that Puerto Rico has stayed under the radar of the shark world for so long. But for anyone who's interested in learning a bit more about uh, Puerto Rican sharks and what's kind of going on there, I think uh, you should definitely follow uh, Puerto Rico's first shark research and conservation program, which is Conservación Conciencia. Uh, and that's what they are on social media, basically. So they're hoping to add to our knowledge and understanding of these apex predators to best protect, manage, and conserve these species. Um, they're doing some pretty awesome work right now. Their Facebook, I love following it because every couple of days you see something cool going on about sharks or what they've seen um, or what they're doing. So yeah, definitely if you're interested in learning kind of at the beginning of shark research for Puerto Rico, definitely give them a follow. It's just fascinating stuff. Why do you think Puerto Rico has been so under the radar in the shark world. I mean, any mm. reasons you think? I mean, are we, is it like the U.S. not uh, offering enough grant funding for research? I mean, is there not a is there a lack of desire to explore that part of the world? Um, mm. You know, what, what would you say, what, in your opinion? You know, what, what would yeah. you think some of those reasons are? To be honest, I think. Um, the founder of Conservación Conciencia said it best in where a lot of people funding wise think that because Puerto Rico um, is technically a part of the United States that we get funding from the United States for that kind of research, but we don't. Um, so there is that kind of like lack of communication there. Um, I know that they are working on a few different grant projects um, to get some more money to do more research. Um, and I myself am very interested in doing some research there too. Uh, so I'm hoping to work with them in the near future uh, regarding some stuff going on there. But yeah, I, I think it's just people push to the side, brown people. <laughs> that's that's how it is. And, you know, yeah. Puerto Rico is just so different from the rest of the United States that the United States kind of like, no, nah, we're not going to give you money for any of that kind of stuff and sort, <laughs> sort of forgets about um our little Caribbean nation there. But, um, you know, that that's why communities and programs like um, Conservación Conciencia are so important because they take matters into their own hands. And then that's research that's being done by locals for locals. Uh, so then the community of Puerto Rico gets to know what's in their own backyard, how they're impacting it, uh, how to better coexist with those predators, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I didn't know that, Melissa, that um, the that Puerto Rico doesn't really get funding from the U.S. for that scientific research. And just what a what a missed opportunity. I mean, the, the ecological wonders that exist on La Isla are, I mean, breathtaking. I mean, we have like one of the few bioluminescent bays in the world and we have unique species of birds that live in El Yunque. Um, I definitely would love Puerto to learn. Trench. <laughs> Exactly. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. I mean, it's it's like, uh, I don't know, mind boggling to think that there's not proper funding. Um, so ho hopefully that changes. But definitely I'll, I'll check out this group. Thanks for putting it on our radar. Yeah. We'll, we'll throw that in the show notes too. Um, 
So uh, let's stick in the Forbes territory because you wrote another article for Forbes that I really liked. Um, and uh, you were talking about um, the extinction of sharks. Um, and I know it was weird that I just laughed before jumping into that topic. So <laughs> not connected. Sorry. It's, an, it's a nervous laugh. <laughs> it's a nervous laugh because it, it frankly uh, was uh, quite terrifying because the study that was published uh, in Current Biology uh, showed that uh, one third of, of the world's sharks were were threatened with extinction, and that's and that's also I should say it was like sharks, I think stingrays, and I yeah. think another another species. But anyway, chimeras. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's chondrichthians, which is the whole group collectively what they're called, and the chondrichthians uh, are the sharks, the rays, the skates, and the chimeras. All of those uh, animals right there in that group. What makes them, did you say chondrichians? Yeah, chondrichians. What makes them chondrichians? Uh, so all of them together are chondrichians. The sharks, the rays, and the skates are technically elasmobranchs. <laughs> and then the chimeras oh, are holocephalic. It's, <laughs> it's a whole evolutionary yeah. like bit. Um, they're just, it, it's that whole entire thing of like, all sharks, skates, rays, and chimeras are fish, but not all fish are sharks, skates, rays, and chimeras. Uh, there's mm. just little tiny details here and there. Um, and one of that, the biggest ones is uh, they don't have bones. Like their skeletons aren't made out of bones. They're made out of cartilage. So the stuff at the tip of your nose or at the uh, backs of your ears, that's what their skeletons are made out of. So that's probably one of the biggest difference between this group of animals and the rest of what we call the bony fish or teleost fish. Oh my gosh, you're blowing my mind, Melissa. This is exactly <laughs> what I wanted. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, so I'm going to be at a dinner party and be like, y'all. No. Um, let me tell you let about me the tell difference you. of fish and sharks. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but this is super This is, I mean, it is super helpful context for me, um, especially like, you know, I'll, I'll most definitely go back to, to read that article um, with that context. But looking at um, one third of the world's um what is condo chondrichthians it's hard it's hard (laughs) there you go um that is just such a devastating blow to their population um can you share a little bit you know what are some of the factors that are are, are threatening let's let's kind of focus on sharks mostly you know what are some of the factors that are threatening shark populations yeah uh so probably the biggest ones that sharks face is uh unregulated, unsustainable pressure from overfishing and bycatch. So overfishing, uh, for those who don't know, it's capturing more fish from an area than that stock can actually replenish itself. Uh, And for sharks, what that means is that sharks take a really long time to sexually mature in order to have babies. And then usually they don't have that many babies. They're not like fish where they just throw sperm and eggs up in the water column and they're like, all right, be free. Um, hopefully I have a few hundred thousand babies be born out of this. No, they take quite a long time to nurture, um, not nurture, uh, grow babies either in, uh, we call them pups. So they're either in eggs or they're actually in the mother shark's stomach. And even though there's not any parental care for sharks, uh, it, it takes a while for sharks to be pregnant, to give birth or lay an egg, and then that baby shark to grow up and be born. And oftentimes they don't grow up to adulthood. And so we're taking out more sharks than they can put back out into the ocean, essentially. 
both in targeted fisheries, so fisheries that are specifically targeting sharks as um, something that they want to catch, and also bycatch, which means they're accidentally being caught, even though they weren't the specified target of a specific fishery. So those are the biggest ones, is overfishing and bycatch. Uh, but then, of course, you've got climate change and habitat destruction are another really big one because we're demolishing where these animals call home. So not only do they not have those structures that they can rely on, but there goes their prey. And when you take out their prey, there goes their food source. And it's just a trickle down effect, essentially. Um, and while a lot of people for them, an ocean filled with sharks is very scary. For me and a bunch of other different scientists, an ocean without sharks is the scariest thing because we need healthy shark populations in order to have a healthy ocean. And the ocean's kind of important because it takes up the majority of our planet. Can, can you say a bit more on that? You know, what, I, I like where you're going there. I mean, what, let's focus more on, you know, why should people, why should this matter to people that uh, shark populations are in danger? Why do sharks, why do sharks matter to the ocean period? Yeah. Uh, so for the ocean, it, it's a whole ecological thing. You know, they keep food webs balanced. Um, they're really good at putting nutrients into different places. You know, they'll eat a fish from the open ocean. They'll come back to the reef. They'll poop on the coral reef. And essentially that's fertilizer. Um, they Their mere presence can actually change how animals behave, which in turn changes how that animal eats and can actually affect how a specific area looks. Uh, so ecologically, they're very, very important, but also culturally, they're very important to a lot of people. Uh, you know, Hawaii is a really good example, but here in Australia as well, there's many communities who have strong cultural ties to sharks and you take that away from them. You're taking away a really big part of their identity. And then, of course, economic wise, uh, sharks bring in billions of dollars a year, uh, both for those fisheries, but also for ecotourism worldwide and so really um you need those sharks not just for the ocean but for our own sake thinking about um how the everyday person um who may when you talk to them about sharks imme immediately start thinking of jaws or you know deep blue sea what are some of the common misconceptions of what sharks are what sharks do yeah, so probably the most common ones is that they're man-eating monsters, they're mindless killers. As soon as you get into the water, you've got a target on your back, and that's just not true. Uh, if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, we're not on the menu for them. You know, we, we technically don't belong in the water. We're land animals. Uh, so a lot of times when a shark does bite a person, it's... Uh, what some scientists or many scientists call mistaken identity. So we look like an animal that they would normally eat, such as a seal or a sea turtle. Uh, and so I, I think we love to hate on our monsters. We love to hate on these animals that are so different from anything that we've kind of seen and kind of fuels our nightmares. And so that's what sells. For Hollywood and a lot of movies, that's why you've got Jaws, you've got all of the Sharknados, um, you've got Deep Blue. I mean, the whole list goes on. Every summer a blockbuster comes out that has something to do with a shark. The reality is so different. I really wish, and I know I have a lot of privilege being able to swim with sharks on quite a regular basis, but I really wish that we could make it a bit more accessible for people to swim with these animals in 
a controlled environment, an environment where people are actually doing the right thing, you know, not trying to pet them, not trying to ride them, not trying to um, feed them dangerously or anything like that. I wish people could just kind of see them in the wild because it's so different from what's portrayed in the media. Um, a lot of times, for example, uh, sharks sometimes don't like noise. And so if you're in a scuba dive uh, with breathing out, you've got bubbles and it's loud and it's noisy and they want nothing to do with you. They'll stay really, really far away. And they're just like, no, nah, I'm not going near that noisy thing. Wow. Uh, sometimes they're very curious. They want to come a bit closer. They like nudge you that sometimes if you have a camera or sometimes you have a PVC pipe, you've got to like nudge them away being like, all right, like give me a little bit of space. Cause they're so interested. Um, it, it's just fascinating to me, the different personalities you see and it's beautiful just kind of seeing this relatively heavy animal oftentimes just gliding effortlessly through the water, kind of checking you out. Um, yeah, it, it's something I wish more people could see because I think if they knew how sharks actually were and if they knew the variety of sharks, you know, there's over 500 different species of sharks. Not all of them look like great whites or tiger sharks or bull sharks, which are the quote unquote scary ones. Um, you know, I have ones that fit in the palm of my hand. Um, I, I think if people saw the diversity of sharks and saw them in their own natural environment, they'd think a little bit differently about them. We weren't always as, as a, as a people, we weren't always afraid of sharks. Can you share a little bit about that? Like humans and shark relationships? Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's really cool having gone back and looked at all the different folklores and whatnot, where. A lot of times sharks were seen as gods or deities that people revered. Um, oftentimes they were also seen as what literally shaped the land of a specific community. Um, so a lot of, most of the, like, there were so many that I found um, where people really idolized sharks in a positive way. Sharks were seen as protectors, um, seen sometimes as ancestors, like the reincarnation of an ancestor. Uh, other times they were tricksters. Uh, other times they were the bad guys. And so, you know, it just shows that even with indigenous communities, it is a complex relationship. But I think what indigenous communities have shown so well with both nature and any kind of animal really is that ability to coexist with those animals. Even if there was any kind of fear, they still respected them. They still gave that animal its space. Um, they had that coexisting mindset, which I think we've almost forgotten about nowadays. We've kind of let our mindset of being like, oh, we live on this planet, it's all ours, gloss over the fact that these animals have been around for millions of years, way longer than we've ever been around. And, you know, it, it's their bit first. And so, yeah, I think to me, it was just fascinating to see that there is still such complexity with the relationship of these animals. It just looks a little bit different and is a bit skewed uh, towards the negatives nowadays. Looking at um, looking back at yourself as a kid, you have a series of books um, that are um, essentially about nature, right? Um, I mean, that's very like simple, I'm simplifying it, but um, the series is called Wild Survival. What should people know about that series? What do you hope kids yeah. get from that? What do you hope their parents <laughs> gain from reading them? You know, give us that elevator pitch. 
Yeah, so Wild Survival is about an Afro-Latinx uh, family who had a wildly popular YouTube channel, uh, which was known as Wild Survival, where the family who owns a zoo and sanctuary, like wildlife sanctuary, uh, they would show behind the scenes of them rescuing animals, of the veterinarian processes and that sort of stuff. And they got picked up by a TV producer. And so this is kind of their first foray into the TV world and what's kind of going on. And the two kids, Faye and Adriana, uh, Faye is the older brother of Adriana, uh, they always were in, behind the cameras. So they weren't allowed to be in front of the cameras for the YouTube series, but for the TV series, now they get to be in front of the cameras. So it's kind of a coming of age story of Adriana specifically. She's the protagonist, the main heroine, if you will is really trying to prove to her, her family, but also herself that she can do this, that this is what she wants to do, uh, and is showing her parents that she's old enough and mature enough to be in front of the camera and kind of host her own wildlife show. There's issues that come along, mostly because she still is a kid, uh, and always uh, when kids get a little bit too overconfident, there are some problems that come up, but the thing that I really love is the family sticks by each other no matter what. You know, they're always looking out for one another. They're always helping one another out. Um, they, it is about that comunidad again. And so the first book is, because it is a series, the first book is based out of Cuba. Uh, the second one is based out of Sri Lanka. And the third one, which actually comes out April of this year, so 2022, uh, is based out of Mexico. Uh, so it focuses on different predators who have th these different misunderstood predators, essentially. So the first one's about crocodiles, the second one's about sharks, and the third one is about jaguars and a community trying to live with the jaguars that are around them. And so it always is about those tensions that people have with wildlife and how you can kind of overcome it to have that coexisting mindset instead. Uh, so because the Villalobos family is Afro-Latinx, there is Spanish in there. So you can learn Spanish uh, both with your child, but also as an adult. Uh, because it is all about wildlife, you actually have like field notebook notes of the different animals that both easy to digest for both kids and for adults. In the back of the book, there's usually like a Q&A section. So for the first one, it's uh, the differences between a crocodile and an alligator. Um, a little bit about the story of what inspired that book. For the sharks, it's a Q&A of like the most frequently asked shark questions. Uh, it's based out of Sri Lanka. So it not only focuses or showcases the Spanish language, it actually showcases the different languages that are in Sri Lanka as well. And the same exact thing with the third one as well. It's based out of Mexico. So again, it's mostly Spanish, but it talks a bit about um, the jaguars and the differences between jaguars and other big cats. Uh, Q&A with a jaguar scientist about what's going on in the book and also what actually exists out there uh, in regards to wildlife research and the status of these animals as well. So I've had both small kids reading it and absolutely love it. And I've got like my friends and family and their friends and family read it. And they're like, oh, this is actually really good. <laughs> and I'm enjoying it. Um, so yeah, I think for me, again, it's that whole representation thing. You know, how many Afro-Latinxes do you see in the wildlife conservation sphere? Very few. 
And so it's telling that story of the different family dynamics of the possibilities that are out there. And so I'm hoping that those who read it, both young and old, can see themselves a little bit in each of the different characters. And at the end of it, not only come away from learning something and who knows, maybe wanting to learn a little bit more about the topics that they've gone over, uh, but also with a sense of, hey, if she can do it, I can do it as well. Hmm. Uh, and it's also a lot of fun because it actually shows you wilderness survival skills. So for example, uh, how to tell the time based on the sun and the direction based on the sun, um, how that. to make a sling for your arm if you don't have a traditional sling uh, based out of just like your t-shirt and that sort of stuff, essentially. So it's an educational, fun book. Uh, I'm hoping to write more of the series. We'll see if it's a smashing hit. The first two were good hits, so I'm very excited about that. Um, nice. But yeah, it's just my way of putting more books out there that I wish I had as a kid and putting out more of that representation. Hey there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, baseomedia.org. Before I forget... I was at DePaul University recently. I spoke to a class of entrepreneurs, and um, it's always great to be back at my alma mater, at our alma mater. Kim and I both graduated from DePaul University, and I met a couple of students that are participating in the National Bateman Case Study Competition. It's a pretty cool competition that public relations students participate in. They essentially work with the client around a particular issue and you know try to uh, develop a PR campaign around that particular issue. And these two students were working specifically around lymphoma, um, shared some really good information. Like, did you know that the Journal of Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology found that young Latino males affected by lymphoma scored higher in depressive symptoms post-diagnosis than other adolescents and young adults? And more generally, did you know that lymphoma accounts for nearly one in five cancer diagnoses among adolescents and young adults? That's a pretty high ratio. Obviously, there are high risk factors, so it's vital for Latino families to know the signs, symptoms, and mental health effects of a lymphoma diagnosis and, of course, where to seek support. So they shared some helpful social media handles for people that want to learn about more resources that the Lymphoma Research Foundation and the Paul Foundation have for adolescent and young adult lymphoma patients, survivors, caretakers, advocates, and loved ones, anyone that's interested in tapping into resources around lymphoma are more than welcome to follow at Erase Lymphoma DePaul on Instagram, at Erase Lymphoma on Facebook, and at Erase underscore Lymphoma on Twitter. Again, uh, you can go there, learn more about the resources that are available to you to just raise your general awareness, uh, figure out you know ways to seek support for um, the effects of learning about a lymphoma diagnosis. Uh, they're doing some, these students are doing some really good work to, to try and raise awareness. So if you or somebody you know could tap into these resources, uh, definitely uh, follow any one or all of those social media handles. Enjoy the rest of the show. This past Olympics, Summer Olympics, Jasmine Camacho Quinn 
uh, brought Puerto yes. Rico our second ever gold medal. And there was a ton of people, right? A ton of people like super excited, happy that she won. But I felt like, and I don't know if you saw this on Twitter too, on Puerto Rican Twitter, but you had, I felt like you had a lot of Boricuas questioning her Boricua card. Like, yeah. is she Puerto Rican? Because she didn't speak Spanish fluently. She wasn't born on the island. Um, of course, we can't ignore that she herself was Afro-Boricua. So uh, the the way that, uh, you know, powers that be try to whitewash what representation looks like of our people. Like, I think there's a little bit of racism in there um, as to as to where that was coming from and people questioning whether or not she was Puerto Rican. So that's just inspired this question, because I don't think there is a checklist of what it means to be Puerto Rican, but I always love hearing what guests have to say and you know what their experiences have been and how they look at that question. So anyway, I just wanted to preface it with that. But yeah, what is what is being Puerto Rican and what does being Mexican mean to you? Yeah, you know, I think first off, I think that's a really good point is that within our community, we can be so vile to one another of being like, oh, you're yeah. not Latina enough, you're not Latino enough, you're not yep. Latinx enough. And it's one of those things that we need to stop that. Mm -hmm. Like, we really need to stop the division between our community yeah. uh, because there isn't one way to be Latinx. There's many different ways of being Latinx, and that includes having broken Spanish or no Spanish or perfect Spanish. Uh, my Spanish by no means is any perfect because I left uh, Mexico when we were quite young and in order to kind of better assimilate into the United States, we actually didn't speak Spanish at home until my mom was like, oh, wait a minute, they're losing their Spanish. And by that point, it was kind of a bit too late. And so I really put the onus on me to relearn it again. But how many Mexicans do you think or Puerto Ricans, both of them, do you mm -hmm. think are in Australia? Like none. <laughs> We just got Taco Bell here for the first time and all my Aussie friends were like, oh, you must be so excited to have Mexican here. And I'm oh, like, no, no, geez. no, please. No. And I've told people I'm from Puerto Rico before and they're like, oh, is that in Europe? And I'm like, oh, oh just let me paciencia, por favor. Like, <laughs> no, no. And so it, it's one of those things that we have to stop defining Latinidad in one way because it doesn't exist in one single way. It comes yeah. in a multitude of colors, a multitude of shades. Um, so we need to stop. Uh, for me, being Puerto Rican and Mexican, you know, it, it is so deeply ingrained in who I am. It's everything to me. And, you know, I think my background, my heritage, my culture has really paved the way for me to be where I am. You know, I do everything with a bit of flair, with a bit of stubbornness of that Latin heat. Um, always with mi comunidad and mi mente. And I think that sets me apart from other scientists and science communicators, because not only do I then get a really strong comunidad who's like, hey, she's one of us. I see what she's trying to do. I love interacting with her and whatnot. But also I, I think a lot of times for science, we get frowned upon if we get excited about something. Like if we ver like outwardly show excitement and stuff like that. And I've been told by that before um, by other scientists who are like, ooh, you're just a little bit too excited about this. And I'm like, Sims, when is that a bad thing? Right. Um, and I don't know if it's just a me thing or if it's part of my culture and whatnot, but I'm, I'm proud to always be happy and look at life through childlike eyes. And what I mean by that is always finding something cool even in the small little things, I always find something that's awesome about what's around me. And yeah, I'm not ashamed of that. That yeah. makes me who I am. I think that sets me apart. 
and I think I have a lot of my culture to thank for that. And so, yeah, it means everything to me. Uh, well said. I mean, shame on those people that were poo-pooing your excitement. What the hell? Who, who, just, who does that? Oh, <laughs> You're too happy? What? <laughs> especially when we're doing stuff that's like really cool and has never right. been done before. And I'm like, how are you not excited about this? They're just sitting there all mute. Like, and I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to grow up to be like that. that. No, that's wild. I mean, and how many people can say they genuinely get excited about their job? Yeah. Not exactly. many of us. So like you're like you're breathing rare air and what a blessing that is. I mean, like, hell yeah. I mean, if I saw somebody that was excited at work, I'd be like, I feel like that would make me kind of that, that much more excited. You know what I mean? Exactly. Uh, and that's and that's it. Some people it's, are weird. You know, honestly, you know, you've got this entire amazing world out there and you're not pumped up about it. Like what? <laughs> Well, I, I love the positive energy. Um, what would you say has been one of the best pieces of advice that you've ever been given? Yeah. Um, for me, probably the best piece of advice I've been given is keep going. Even when you're completely by yourself and it feels like nobody's on your side, if you believe in what you're doing, keep going and you'll find that community, those support people around you. And I think that's really important in not just the science and science communicator sphere, but in all of life is finding a really good group of people who can support you, who you can support and help lift up as well. And they can help you keep going on the days that you're just like, nah, everything I'm doing is useless and worthless. Da, da, da. They'll sit you down and be like, excuse me, you are amazing. Do I have to remind you why? I think, yeah, just that little voice saying, keep going. Because if you're passionate about what you're doing, if you really believe in what you're doing, go out there and show the world what they're missing. Right on. Well, for people that don't want to miss out on your work, um, what you do, um, you know, whether that's writing, whether that's um, researching, you know, if people want to keep up with you, how can they do that? Yeah, so I'm all over social media. Uh, on Twitter, I am MCM Sharks XX. On Instagram and Facebook, I am Melissa Christina Marquez. Uh, so those are probably my big three. Uh, on YouTube, I've also got uh, Melissa Christina Marquez. Uh, it doesn't have any videos yet, but that is coming. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that's the best way uh, to find me. And if people have questions uh, about sharks, about being a Latina in marine biology or a Latina in STEM, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'm like any other millennial. I've got my phone near me all the time. So I'm happy to chat. All right. Melissa Cristina Marquez, marine biologist, science communicator, and author. Thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast. Gracias, Joshua. <laughs> okay, everyone. It's that part of the show where we discuss headlines in the world of Puerto Rico. I'm joined by my lovely wife, Kim Ortiz. Let's jump right into it. And again, I should preface this. We're not going to cover every single headline out there. That's would take up way too much time. So if you want to throw out a, a news headline our way, you want to put it on our radar, you feel like we should have discussed it during this segment, reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Paseo Podcast. You can email us, paseopodcast at gmail.com. All right, first headline. People Espanol reported that La Borinquena 
will become the first Afro-Latina superhero action figure. Pretty historic. Who's that? So it's... <laughs> no, I don't know what this is. <laughs> uh, it's a comic book superhero. Actually, famously, if I do say so myself, was on one of our earlier episodes of the podcast where we broke down some of our top Puerto Rican superheroes. Oh, whoops. But in short... <laughs> Uh, she is an original comic book character created by award-winning philanthropist and graphic novelist Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. I think he did like a crossover with DC. Um, so like Wonder Woman and La Borinquena are in the same uh, comic book story. But it's pretty popular. Um, That's exciting. Yeah. Well, I know with some of these Marvel things that you follow when there's like a cool storyline or a comic story. I don't know what you call it mm-hmm. that people like. They'll bring it into the movies really quickly. So I wonder if that's something that's like in our lifetime, we might see her in a blockbuster. Hey, I think that'd be dope. But Edgardo was actually uh, reaching out to Netflix and trying to lobby them to have a La Borinquena Netflix series. And that was off the heels of where Netflix did this internal audit of the demographic representation uh, across their movies and, and TV shows, mm-hmm. and they've realized that they were substantially lacking in representation for BIPOC folks. So Edgardo goes on Twitter, is like, man, Netflix, well, this is a great opportunity to you know address the issue you found. He was like, let's get this going. Rosario Dawson was like, yeah, I'll play her. And Rosario Dawson has actually voiced her before, I think, in p- previous like Get Out the Vote ads that La Borinquena was in. So anyways, the figurines are going to be one-twelfth scale replicas of La Borinquena, Luz, and Oro, El Coqui, Dorado, and La Gargola. So that's four uh, different uh, characters in the comic book series. And there's another milestone there, too, where uh, Luz will be the first ever Chinese Dominican action figure to be produced by a toy company. Next story on our radar, Boricua Ariana de Bose became the first Latina and queer woman of color to take home the SAG Award for Outstanding Performance in a Supporting Role for West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of it. Yeah, it was awesome to see her get it. It was awesome to see her get it from another Latina. Like I think Selena Gomez was the one who presented it to her. It's pretty historic and, and awesome. The next story we have is from Latino Rebels, a pro-independence group protest in D.C. And that uh, another uh, nonprofit organization, activist organization for Puerto Rico called Power for Puerto Rico blasted Biden for uh, broken promises. These are the moments when I wish that I lived in D.C. because I love that people who live there can just jump out of their houses and go join a protest in front of the Supreme Court. Um, And it looked like just the way they were doing it as Puerto Ricans do everything, even though it was a protest, it looked like they were having such a good time. And I just the timeliness of it all doing it during the State of the Union, um, I had, you know, this conspiracy in my head that Sonia Sotomayor wasn't there listening because she was, you know, busy at the protest right after work. So why not just stop by? Uh, didn't see any footage of her joining them there, but I like to imagine that in my head. I, I saw that it did gain media attention. I hope that Biden noticed. I hope that the administration noticed. They chose an interesting day. Do you know what that day, this past that past Tuesday, what that was the anniversary of? Not this past Tuesday, but last past Tuesday. Oh, wait, I know this one. Wasn't it when Lolita shot up Congress? 
Yes. And uh, <laughs> Rafael Cancel Miranda, Andres Figueroa Cordero, and Irvine Flores Rodriguez. Um, you know, they shot up Congress and furled the original flag of Puerto Rico and fired 30 rounds uh, from the visitor's balcony in the House of Representatives. So no one was killed, but right. there were some I people I didn't mean injured. to make it sound violent. That's just how it mm-hmm. came mm-hmm. out. All right, next news story we got is from Floriqua. Um, do you know J.J. Barea? Sounds familiar. Dallas Mavericks. Is he a he's basketball retired. player? Or I think he might be playing in Puerto Rico. Uh, I got to look up what he's doing nowadays. But he's yes. a basketball player then. Yes. Okay. He's Puerto Rican, one of the few Puerto Rican players in the league. So J.J. Barea has teamed up with Hotelier to build a multi-sports center in Hatore. So, the, so this is like a community thing? That's what it sounds like. So from what I'm reading... He's behind, J.J. Barea is behind a $7 million project that will include indoor and outdoor fields for a variety of sports, a restaurant, and a hotel where athletes can stay while training. Oh, so it's for athletes, not for the community? That's what it sounds like. I mean, this is the facility will have a 23-room hotel with capacity for 111 people to offer athletes the opportunity to train and lodge in the same place. Hmm. Yeah. So it says like the, so to your point, I think the idea is, um, you're going to attract maybe some tournaments, you yeah, know, minor, yeah, yeah. maybe major from the United States. Um, so it could be like, or other parts of the world, I'd assume. And it would become a venue for like preseason stuff to major stuff. I mean, it major attractions. Um, so, yeah. I'd imagine he knows the island. He has family there. He wants to do it right and and not take advantage of the island, but actually see some money go into the communities around where he's planning to build this. He actually plays basketball in Puerto Rico. He's been playing for the Cangrejeros de Santurce. Oh, the games that he always goes to, Bad Bunny. Yes, and he's the co-owner of the team. Like Bad Bunny is an owner of the team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, Bad Bunny is the co-owner of that team. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. So this guy isn't also an owner? No, he just plays for them? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, he plays for the team. Gotcha. So it's actually giving back. So you think Bad Bunny's going to like invest in the center as well? I'd hope so. I think it'd be kind of cool. It seems right up his alley. Yeah. I think it'd be, I think in an ideal world, it would be great for it to be just open up to the community. If kids want access to, you know, state-of-the-art sports equipment, they can work out, play games, stuff like that. I think that's would be amazing. Um, so it's too bad that's not this, but I do see value in this from the standpoint of there's some really great athletes in Puerto Rico. You know, and so a lot of times the facilities aren't up to snuff. So having something like this where people can go and actually get access to top of the line stuff and experiences on like really nice courts, you know, more power to them. I think that's it's pretty cool. All right, this next story is a little odd. I'm going to admit, I don't know all the details, but it's like taking up my feed. And I don't know that I'm like, super into it but um apparently there was this like fugitive from canada that was arrested in puerto rico (laughs) have you heard about this uh yeah i have what do you know about this story because i'm like still catching up on this um it sounds like yeah there was this like mobster from canada who you know um, took off to Puerto Rico to kind of get out of trouble and, you know, created a whole new identity and life down there. And on the island, like, he's known as this great guy who has this rescue beekeeping company that he Jeez. even went so far as to 
put a rescue uh, beehive at the governor's mansion. And like the governor was like praising him about his community work and that we have to support nonprofits like this. And then it turns out the guy is like a criminal from Canada and he's just living like this double life. But the FBI found out and like was finally able to catch him. That's what it sounds like. I mean, from what I'm from what I'm understanding, uh, he lived in Puerto Rico for five years. This was recent that you said the governor praised him, right? Yeah, this was like a month ago or something like that. Like this guy was leading volleyball tournaments, like having cookouts on beaches and like I mean he did seem like if you could say someone turned their life around like turned his life around I don't know what he was doing on the side but you know he totally created a just a completely new identity for himself on the islands and uh time caught up with him I guess I'm just thinking of what's going through governor Pedro Pierluisi's mind because he's like dealing with so much stuff as it is already I mean there's that new debt restructuring plan there's the workers protests People are not liking him. And then he's over here like <laughs> friends with a fugitive yeah. Yeah. praising him bees. a few weeks yeah. ago. Or who installed some bees. Oh. That would explain that Luma Energy contract. Oh my God. Anyway, next story. Are they from Canada? I thought they were They're American. They're a Canadian-American company. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. The plot thickens, I know. <laughs> That'd be funny. Yeah. <laughs> All right, next story, which... Let's be honest here. This is gossip. It's not like anything uh, like groundbreaking, but uh, there's some beef between Residente mm. and J Balvin. I know you like this story because you got your own beef with J Balvin. Man, yeah. you know it's, it it started when we saw that Architectural Digest yes. video that I'm, I'm obsessed with those videos, and we saw the J Balvin one, and his entire house was based off of a culture that is not his. I, I get how that could rub you the wrong way. And it sounds like Residente from like what I've read in this Rolling Stone article feels the same way. Like he's just kind of a, I feel like he calls him a fraud without calling him a fraud. He does say that he's about the payola, you know, scheme that's illegal where he's basically bought his way to the top and that he was disrespectful when he met Residente, that, you know, because he doesn't, he's not popular on Spotify, that that was like, he was mocking him, which I just think is like, these people paved the way for you to even exist. How dare you? Basically, he just can't respect J Balvin because he knows he's not an artist because he, buys his way into things, he buys the writing, he, you know, just purchases everything and isn't an actual artist. Like he doesn't spend hours upon hours working on his music. He just buys it. Even like him having like uh, walking those two black women in his music video, like dogs uh, saying that he wanted to. I'm glad I did not see that. uh, The the video, the music video has been taken down. It's been deleted. He he had to put out a, J Balvin had to put out a video apologizing. J Balvin also won an Afro-Latin Artist of the Year Award. Oh, God. From who? Who did that? <laughs> I'll give you the lowdown. This is a, there is fault in both sides yeah. here. So this who, is, who did that? So this is from Billboard. This is an article from Billboard. Essentially, mm-hmm. before 2021 ended, J Balvin was involved in another controversy after accepting the Afro-Latin Artist of the Year Award, which was given to him by the African Entertainment Awards on December 26th. When he Who was in- hosts the African Entertainment Awards? No is it, idea. Uh, is this held in Africa? 
That's a good question. We'll have to look that up. But here, here's what here's what happened. So he's announced the winner. Balvin celebrated being honored with the award in a now deleted Instagram post. Of course. Right. Sounds like he has to delete a lot. And let me just point out who his manager is. Uh oh. Say it. Say it, Kim. Scooter Braun. <laughs> and that's all I'm gonna say about that. Uh, uh, <laughs> no other words need to be spoken. So much drama yes. in that man's world. Like attracts it. It's odd. Uh, but basically, they claim the award is not intended solely for Afro-Latino artists. Which to me, I'm like, then why have the award? But anyway, it is not. <laughs> and they were quoted as saying it is not based on race. I'm going to look up who runs this show. You really should. <laughs> so but why call them the Afro-Latin Artist of the Year? Wouldn't you name the award something different? These, this are, is, these are all interesting decisions. Right. But all this to bring up the new development in that story is that the Residente dropped an eight minute diss track on J Balvin called Session 49. Next episode, we're going to be talking to Javier Hernandez. He's the author of a book called Puerto Rico, The Economic Case for Sovereignty. He breaks down theories, throws a bunch of math, and really lays out how if Puerto Rico were to become its own independent country, the ways that it could be economically sustainable and successful. So it's a really interesting conversation. Looking forward to, to sharing it with you all. But until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Cuídate.